Good morning again. I don't know if some of you traveled over this week. I just flew in from Nashville, so I think I'm still on central time zone. It's good to be back. If you've got your outline today, I've doubled what my normal outlook outline looks like. Doesn't mean it's twice as long. That's somebody mentioned that. We'll get you out of here on time. There are a lot of books on church growth, church planting, general church and ministry issues. Uh, you may have noticed that we have a couple of those at the church office. Uh, not too many. Never, never too many. I've read a few of these books about ministry in my day, as has any pastor that's been in ministry for any length of time. And a lot of the practical issues in ministry, you don't get that in seminary. In fact, there's a book I read recently, What I Didn't Learn in Seminary. And some of these are great books where uh, a senior pastor has been in ministry for a long time, is passing on wisdom that us younger pastors can soak up. Um, but I've, I've read a number of them. In fact, one recently called 10 Stupid Things That Churches Do to Keep, that keep Them From Growing. Something like that. And uh, just, hey, free of charge, I have brought a little list this morning for you of seven things that sort of sum up a lot of these things that I've read. Uh, what church growth experts believe every pastor should think through if he wants his church to grow and his congregation to respect him. I'm not saying we do all these things, but this is sort of, you know, just summarizing what I've read. Seven things. Here we go. Number one, pick a good location for your church. It's got to be near people. It's got to be easily accessible. A good building doesn't hurt. Number two, Pastors, staff, people should dress and act like the target audience that they're trying to reach, right? You need to blend in to wherever you live, whatever culture, and make people feel like they understand you and that you will accept them. Uh, number three, it's probably best if you are non-confrontational from the pulpit. Uh, be sensitive to the felt needs uh, the weaknesses of those people who visit your church. You need to woo people with love and acceptance. Number four, don't talk about politics. Particularly, don't zero in on individual political figures and their failings. Number five, network with other spiritual leaders, other pastors. Respect their callings and their ministries. Number six, when there's conflict, always take the high road. Uh, never resort to name calling. And number seven, avoid nepotism, hiring your relatives, and favoritism, anything like that. Got it? Not many of you were writing that down. That's okay. Um, because looking over this list... And thinking about our passage today, the beginning, the first half of Matthew chapter 3, 
I'm afraid that John the Baptist never got that memo. (laughs) Apparently, he never read the church growth books that he was supposed to. In fact, he's a solid 0 for 7 on all of those things that I just listed. The man hung out in the wilderness where nobody lived, and everyone had to come out and inconvenience themselves to find him. He dressed and acted a little wild. Didn't quite fit into the proper Roman culture of the day. He rebuked just about everyone he saw, calling them sinners and snakes, uh, including Herod, who eventually took his head. And he kept pointing to this cousin of his that he wanted everyone to favor and to acknowledge the cousin's ministry. John broke all the rules. I don't think he would have gone over well in today's church culture. Not that he was even trying to go over well in his day. All four gospel writers include John in their narratives. Uh, Mark even starts his gospel with John. He's clearly a key, important figure at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. As, as, so as we turn to Matthew chapter 3, we've, we've jumped a long ways from, from our Christmas infancy narratives of, of the sermons that we've been preaching in the first two chapters. All we get is in those days, but translate that out, it's some 30 years later. So Matthew 3, turn with me. I've, I think I've put all the scriptures in your outline there. Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We read that in the responsive reading. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you? to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptized you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Lord God, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive your message, your scriptures this morning. Speak through and in spite of me, but may we hear fresh this text and understand the many images of it, the much what John was trying to communicate to his listeners and now to us. So feed us, Lord, on your word. Amen. Matthew assumes that the original audience was familiar with John because unlike the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't give any backstory or background on who John was. Um, We know that Luke from Luke, the Gospel of Luke, that his mother, John's mother, was Mary's cousin. And so he's a relative of Jesus. And that his father, we have the story of Zechariah, his father, being struck mute because he doubted the angel who appeared to him to tell him about his wife's upcoming pregnancy. So Luke really gives us a lot better sense of God working to bring these two promised figures, both the Messiah, Jesus, and his forerunner, John, into the world. Both were miracle children, Jesus, obviously from the virgin birth, but John, from a barren womb to elderly parents. His parents' names, I didn't know this, I found out, uh, Zechariah means Jehovah remembers, and Elizabeth's name means Jehovah is faithful. And these are great truths that John's life bears witness to. And we have very parallel statements in the book of Luke about Jesus and John's growing years. We have Luke 2.40, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That's Jesus. Earlier, Luke 1.80 had a similar explanation of John's life. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So we don't know a great deal about their childhoods. We know about their births. We don't even know much about their adult lives until they start their public ministry. And so just as we've been seeing in the first two chapters of Matthew, that Matthew, the author, has been deliberately showing how Jesus' life fulfilled prophecy. So we're going to see that in John's life as well. And we learned last week that Matthew is using typology. You remember Dr. Dave talking about typology, that Jesus was a type or had parallels in his life to Moses' life and the Exodus community. Matthew now shows us that John has a parallel with an Old Testament figure as well. He is a type as well. And he is the new prophet Elijah. So as we look at the first six verses, John and Elijah. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So as we take those few verses, the first section of this narrative, we see what Matthew wants us to call to mind. And if you remember your Old Testament well, in fact, if you just flip back a couple pages, the very last words of the last book, at the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It's the very last thing written in the Old Testament. And then essentially 400 years of scriptural silence. So what was Malachi saying? Elijah had died hundreds of years before Malachi's time. But he's saying that one like Elijah would come. And now we have a man who appears out in the wilderness, out in the desert, lives a rough, solitary, remote life. Listen to the description of the clothing. His clothes were camel hair with a belt. And then hear how Elijah was described in 2 Kings 1.8. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Furthermore, we know that John's message shakes the entire land, the area around where he's preaching, and eventually clashes with the king and his wife just like Elijah did. We've got these parallels. The problem is, if you remember the book of John, chapter 1, verse 21, it says, And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. What do we do with that? Matthew seems to be leading us one way, setting him up as an Elijah figure. John says, I'm not. I'm not. Well, let's let Jesus break the tie. Matthew 11, 13, and 14. Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus called him Elijah. The Elijah that Israel was waiting for. And I don't think John was denying so much. He was just saying, I'm not literally Elijah. And so Matthew is saying here that not that John is Elijah reborn or incarnate, but he does depict John as fulfilling Elijah's mission. And as we said, Israel had not had a prophet in 400 years. And now it receives its greatest prophet. 
Again, listening to Jesus in Matthew 11, verses 9 through 11a. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now John's baptism, we have to understand this as a one-time event in redemptive history. Um, This is a baptism of repentance for the Jews. This baptism hadn't been happening. There's some evidence that there were conversion baptisms, um, but it's certainly not, you don't see that in the Old Testament. And this is not the prescription for how we are, the church was to carry on baptisms going forward. This is a one-time event. Because God is doing something radical here. But actually calling John the Baptist, which which the Scriptures do, which is fine, but somewhat don't lose the fact that the main thrust of his ministry was not necessarily the baptizing, but announcing that judgment was coming and that the king was coming before it. John is the king's herald announcing. In the ancient world, when when royalty traveled, they sent people out to repair the roads so that the king wouldn't have the rough, bumpy ride that the peasants did. And that's what John, that's what he means when he says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, not a literal paving of roads, but calling for people to cast off their sinful ways, calling Israel to be ready for its great king to arrive. Jesus' coming was going to be so shocking and such a radical change of everything that God sent John first to prepare people's hearts. And John is not so much calling people to individual salvation, but calling the nation to turn from its sins back to God so that they would not miss the coming of the kingdom. I think we could even go so far as say John is the law to Jesus' gospel. That's how I see this. We, we must hear the bad news of the law and be called on to deal with our sins before we hear the good news of the gospel and the forgiveness of those sins. Martin Luther summed it up like this. John, who preceded Christ, is called a preacher of repentance, but for the remission of sins. That is, John was to accuse them all and convince them that they were sinners in order that they might know how they stood before God and recognize themselves as lost men. In this way, they were to be prepared to receive the grace from the Lord and to expect and accept from Him the forgiveness of sins. And so the general call to the people 
to the Jewish nation is given to anyone that comes to hear him. But immediately John narrows his focus to a smaller group, to the Jewish spiritual leaders. Follow along again in verses 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So up walk the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It seems from the context that they were, possibly you could read it, they were coming for baptism. Uh, a lot of the commentators I read said, no, they were just coming to where he was baptizing, kind of inspecting, finding out what's going on. Either way, John is immediately suspicious and critical. He seems surprised that these guys even know to show up. I mean, how did you hear there's a new move of God happening here? Who warned you? And this is the first time that we encounter the Pharisees and the Sadducees. As we are going to study the entire book of Matthew, these guys are going to pop up. So we need to know a little bit about these two groups. Uh, they had sprung up in the intertestamental period in between Malachi and Matthew, the 400 years, probably in the 2nd century B.C. Uh, most of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, we'll hear about that later too, was composed of either Pharisees or Sadducees. Um, but they only accounted for about 5% of the Jewish nation. And they're very different. We need to understand. Sometimes we link them together, hear them used together, but they're very different. Listen, the Pharisees, they are the serious, pious group of ordinary Jews who were known as separatists. Okay, They were not the ordained clergy, in a sense. Uh, Craig Blomberg says they were a generally popular and prominent group of laymen who sought to apply the Torah to every area of life. Torah being the law. And that's a, that's a wonderful goal, isn't it? How can I apply this scripture to every area of my life? The problem was that they wanted to create a fence around the Torah to keep people so far from breaking the rules that they had to break the rules that kept them from breaking the rules. Right? In other words, the Old Testament laws weren't enough. They had to explain how those laws applied. And so they came up with a whole system of other laws, oral laws, or traditions of the elders. And those were often what Jesus was railing against. When we hear Jesus critique them, it, it might sound sometimes like he's saying, don't obey the Scriptures. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't make up these artificial rules that aren't there. Uh, some have called the Pharisees the fundamentalist lay pastors of their day. They're very serious about morality. 
but they go well beyond what the scriptures required. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the proud, wealthy priests, the ordained nobility. They were probably the ones responsible for corrupting the temple with money changers. They did accept the Old Testament, but essentially said only the doctrines from the first five books, what we call the Pentateuch, really are binding. So unlike the Pharisees, they didn't believe in an immortal soul and bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in angels and demons being rewarded and punished for their moral actions. This this is going to come up throughout Jesus' ministry. They kind of pick and chose what they believed. Um, And I think our parallel is, is, I think, is liberal clergy, spiritually liberal clergy in mainline denominations today that have big endowments to keep their churches going, but have mostly rejected the main tenets of biblical Christianity. So to make it really simple, I think we have the fundamentalists and the liberals being linked together here. That's a bit of a simplification, but to put it in today's terms. But they can usually agree on one thing. They don't like Jesus. And they're not too sure about John yet. Especially after his comments to them. And Jesus will pick up John's themes of criticizing these two groups, and even more justifiably so, since he, they continually try to trap him and oppose his ministry. But here, we, we haven't really seen anything about them. We don't know who they're about. And, and so John, in classic prophetic fashion, calls them a brood of vipers. I mean, where does that come from? That seems pretty harsh. They're just walking up. But perhaps John is referring to Jeremiah 46, 22. I think that's in your outline. She, she makes a sound like a serpent gliding away, for her enemies march in force and come against her with axes like those who fell trees. Because you have here in John's language both the felling of the trees and the snakes fleeing. So perhaps he's just using this rich Old Testament imagery. But vipers are among the most poisonous of snakes. And I think it's a pretty serious insult to call them that. If he had just wanted to say, hey, your snake's slithering away, he would have said that. But vipers. I think John's implying that these leaders have the ability to poison others, which we'll see that they do. Let's look a little closer at verse 9, because I think a major theme in the whole book of Matthew is contained there. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John is telling them, your identity as a Jew, God's chosen nation, will not save you. God is doing a new work, and you, you'll either accept it or reject it. 
And there's a, there's a really interesting word play there because the Aramaic word for stones and the word for children is very similar. So he's making a little pun there. And Isaiah 51, I think he's referencing here, said that Abraham was the rock from which you were hewn. So in essence, he's saying, yes, you guys are the, the physical heirs of Abraham. But if you're not going to be the spiritual heirs of Abraham, he's going to use other people. He's going to bring other children and raise up different rocks that you don't know about. The Jewish leaders thought that they could, they could not fall away. They were safe. They were the favored nation clause that protected them. But God is going to start including the Gentiles and all those who used to be outside the faith. And the next word picture that he gives, God is going to be doing some clearing, land clearing. He's clearing the forest that is Israel and separating the true Israel from the false Israel. He's already told them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance because if you don't have fruit, you'll be judged. You'll be thrown into the fire. Listen to how Paul explains it in Romans 9, 6 through 8. I think I've put those verses in the outline as well. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul's trying to teach us even more what John is saying here. That it won't be about the flesh, the physical descendants of faith, but the spiritual heirs. Romans 10.12 says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. I'm, I'm going to somewhat of a lengthy explanation because we sometimes forget how big of a break in the thinking for the Jews that was, how radical that was. I mean, they were, they were the insiders and everybody else was out. And Jesus is going to constantly tell them, no, I'm including everybody here. And so John starts as well. And we can't just leave that there. We've got to apply that to ourselves, don't we? Because it's easy for us to think, well, my parents are Christians. I go to church. I'm good. I go to a church that teaches the right things. I'm good. But just as the Jews were the physical descendants of Abraham, but missed many of them missed God, we can come from Christian parents and never embrace salvation from our, for ourselves. Or we can be that, a member of that doctrinally sound church and never apply that doctrine to our hearts to bring us into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Don't make that fatal mistake. Ultimately, John's message is about more than repentance and rebuke, though. It points in these last three verses, two, two verses, 11 and 12, to the one who will come after, the one who will determine each man's eternal destiny. 11 and 12, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now we're just we're getting imagery on top of imagery and it's somewhat hard to follow John's thoughts as he moves in and out of images. The first here is the task of the lowest servant usually in a household. One of his tasks was to put on or take off the sandals, the footwear for his master. And so for John to say that he is not even worthy to carry the sandals of the one who will come after him is to claim absolute humility. I'm not even good enough to be his servant. And essentially, I think he's getting across to the crowd. If you think God is moving, doing something here, just wait. I'm calling you to repentance. I'm baptizing the outside of you, but someone is coming who will be able to accomplish redemption and baptize you with the Spirit or with fire. In another Gospel, John said, He must increase, but I must decrease. And that is not a bad thing for every one of us to remember. I think probably every pastor should have that on his desk or read it every so often as we like to take credit for everything that's happening at our churches. Um, but it's also something every Christian needs to remember as we constantly seek approval and rewards for what we've done. He must increase. I must decrease. Louis Giglio is a national speaker. He actually is the head of a ministry called Passion. And that's where I'm going this week with a few of the college students. He's written a book called I am not, but I know I am. Which, first time you read that, did I read that right? I am not, but I know I am. And he talks about God naming himself, calling himself I am in the book of Exodus. So what does that make us? And he tells us, I think, when we do, he does conferences, he says, go ahead and put on your name tag. I am not. And he says in this book, uh, the complete story, the entire gospel. This is the whole truth about who you are. You are small. But you can be on a first name basis with I am 
You're beyond tiny, but every ounce of you has been bought and redeemed by God's Son. You are a galactic nobody. In fact, 99.9999% of the people on earth have never heard of you. But God knows everything about you and calls you His own. And I think we, if we dwell on that, if we think about that, that's humbling. That should lay us low. But it should infinitely encourage us. John's mission was simple and clear. Jesus must increase and He would decrease. Convinced and aware that Jesus was center stage in the story, John found great joy and compelling purpose in pointing others to Him. Now when we hear the phrase in verse 11, I don't know about you. It's, it's he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I think we we usually put those together and think, I know what that refers to. That must be Pentecost, right? Acts two, the Holy Spirit descends on the believers in tongues of fire. That's certainly possible, but it seems like from the context, what John is describing, we need to separate those two things. Jesus will bring one of two things to each person. For those who believe, He brings the Holy Spirit, baptizes with the Holy Spirit. To those who don't believe, the fire of judgment. And to back that up, He immediately moves to one more picture, image. The final image of someone separating the wheat that they're going to keep and use and the, sh- the chaff that they will toss away and burn up. That's a, that's a picture that's been used throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 1-4, Isaiah 17-13, Hosea 13-3, Joel 3-13. Don't look them up. It just, it's been throughout. So Israel's heard that. All the Jews know this imagery when John says it. And Jesus picks it up as well. The parable in Matthew 13, 37-43. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. This is He's actually explaining the parable. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, December 21st, 2012 has come and gone. The Mayans apparently weren't right with their prediction of the end of the world, just like Harold Camping a year or two ago. We're still here. But let us not 
and be lulled into complacency. That we don't have to think about the end of our lives. I don't think we have to be alarmists and try to guess like that. But we should be examining ourselves. Our lives could end at any moment. And the message of John to repent, turn from your sins, and turn to follow Christ is a timeless one. Because if you miss Jesus, you've missed it all. And you will be judged just like so many of the Jews did. You may have religion, but if you don't have Jesus, you won't have eternal life in the kingdom. First, you must realize that you're a sinner and that your sin separates you from a holy God. So to repent of your sin, turn from it. Jed talked about that earlier, the turning away. And yet, repenting of your sin does not automatically get you into heaven and secure eternal life. And there's no sense that we can clean ourselves up and repent enough to get in ourselves. Someone's blood has to be shed for those sins. Either your own or someone who died with a sinless record so that he could take on other sins. So you must realize that there's only one person who can do that. Jesus Christ, God Himself, the King, the one that John is pointing to, the one who is so much greater than you or me or John that all we can do is proclaim our unworthiness and bow at His feet in worship. And when our sins are taken from us and put on Jesus, then truly the kingdom of heaven has come to our lives. And then when we know we are part of that kingdom, our mission becomes like John's, pointing others to Jesus. Not trying to gain fame for ourselves, but to glorify His name alone as the one who saves So let's take a moment to pray for one of those two things. Perhaps this morning you never heard that challenge that you must repent, turn from your sins, and turn to Christ who will take your sins from you. Pray for that. If you have still time, still things to repent of, but pray that God challenges you in your mission as His herald, as one who proclaims Him His ambassador. But pray silently and I'll close in prayer. Father God, I repent that my life is filled with ways to get other people to see me as greater than I am, to bring glory to myself, to increase when I can. Teach me the way of John. Teach me the way of humility. 
I'm pointing to you that you are the great one. That you must increase, I must decrease. Thank you for the book of Matthew and the account of John's ministry preparing the nation of Israel for the radical coming of the Messiah. Thank you that we are each called to examine our lives to see how Jesus is the King who reigns for us as well. Lord, teach us the truths of Your Word. And help us to be heralds of Your truth, sharing with those who don't know the Gospel. Because we fear that they will come under Your wrath if they do not turn and believe. If they are held to account for their sins, Help us to bring to them the good news that Jesus takes their sins for His own account and forgives theirs. Lord, thank You for this church that believes that good news. Thank You for our study of Matthew and we will dive deeper and deeper into Jesus' life and His ministry. Bless us as we apply these truths, think through them as we go.